This is an ABC podcast. Hi, from David Rutledge, you're with RN and this is The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. Do you ever find yourself wondering why women join extreme right-wing movements? I recently came across an interesting profile of Lauren Southern, the Canadian-born alt-right provocateur who for the past seven or eight years has been a star in the firmament of the white nationalist movement and who now lives in Australia. The article, which we'll put a link to on the website, was written by a reporter who spent a couple of years hanging out with Lauren Southern and just being there while she went about her business. And one of the fascinating things it documents is the sexual harassment that she experiences, not just from anonymous fans, but from her fellow alt-right professionals. It's as gross as you'd expect and seemingly pretty constant. There's also the pressure she experiences from men in the movement who challenge her commitment to the cause, telling her that instead of building a career for herself, she should be getting married and having children because the white race is engaged in an existential struggle. And as her boyfriend tells her, motherhood is to women as war is to men and everybody has to play their part. And so you could say, well, Lauren Southern is just in it for the attention and the money, and you may be right, who knows. But there are plenty of other women in alt-right circles who don't have the profile or professional opportunities of someone like Lauren Southern. What are they doing there? It's a bit of a mystery because misogyny isn't just an unfortunate thing that can happen among far-right extremists. It's baked into the movement itself. The alt-right is just not a congenial place for women. And yet, there they are. So we're going to be talking about all of that today. We're also going to be talking about the ways in which liberal humanism can offer a bad deal to women as well, in spite of the fact that many people see feminism as having been built on such liberal humanist ideals as equality and individual autonomy. Well, all this is by way of introduction to my two guests this week. Louise Richardson-Self is a lecturer in philosophy and gender studies at the University of Tasmania. And Tracy Lanera is a research fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame. And she's also about to be Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut. They're both going to be speaking at a public panel on August the 9th, and I'll give you more details about that later in the program. Louise and Tracy, welcome to the program. And Louise, if I could begin with you. The particular expression of liberal values that you've been looking at has to do with equality. We're talking about affirmative action, the establishing of quotas for various minorities and for women in certain fields of work and education and so on. My background assumption tends to be that opposition to affirmative action comes predominantly from the political right. Is that in fact the case? I would say that it's hard for me to give a definitive answer to that because my data set only looked at one particular newspaper's uh, Facebook presence. However, having said that, in the literature, there are various sorts of quota discourses that come from the left and the right. I would say that the quota discourse that I saw most frequently was the discourse around merit and the balancing in what I think is a false dichotomy between merit on the one hand and affirmative action policies on the other hand. So people seem to think that these two things are just absolutely incompatible. And if you are going to have one, then you can't have the other. And if that's the case, then any affirmative action measure is doomed from the outset because people think it violates the principle of merit 
And merit is supposed to be the gold standard when you're determining which individual will gain some sort of, um, I guess, reward for their hard work and their dedication and their service. People are really hostile to the notion that it might even be possible for someone to get ahead of someone else when they haven't earned it. So I think that that is a critique that gets shared by both left and right of the spectrum because the issue is not so much about specific lenses of social life. It's about whether or not we are rewarding people appropriately for their efforts in particular fields. So just as a very general question then, which I want to come back to and break down a bit, is what you're arguing in your work that liberal values like equality, which on the face of it might seem impeccably feminist friendly, that that these are actually not or, or not necessarily always such a great thing for women? Yeah, it's right that they're not necessarily always such a good thing for women. And the reason for that is that there are multiple ways of interpreting different values. So on the one hand, you will often hear discourse around equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity. So people who are invested in equality of opportunity think that everybody needs to be equal at the starting line. And then wherever your life may go from there, which is a consequence of the choices that you make and the way that you orient your life, uh, so long as we put everyone at the same starting line to begin with, then whatever happens after that, no matter what the kind of hierarchical outlay of the society, then that's a good thing. Then there are people who think that equality of outcome is really what matters because if you live in a society where there are systematic patterns which demonstrate that certain collectives are not as well off as other collectives and there's no clear reason for why that's happening other than bias, stereotypes, stigma and so forth, then equality doesn't really exist. So what you need to do is put active measures in place to get people to the same finish line rather than being on the same starting line. Tracy, I just wanted to get your take on this. Equality, individual autonomy, do you share the same kind of critique that Louise is advancing here? I would say that that's actually a difficult question for me to answer in light of the kind of propaganda and misinformation that I'm looking at in my own work. Um, Because in the first place, the vocabulary of the alt-right, of white nationalists, of extremist racist groups, they're already dangerously and insidiously appropriating equality, individual autonomy, um, freedom for their own particular good. So the conception of a wider collective doesn't seem to be part of that engagement. Um, So... For instance, when they start talking about freedom in terms of what to do about one's body, that's very interpreted very differently if you're thinking about vaccines versus when you're talking about abortions or tubal ligations. So when you have you know, a, a group that already has a particular agenda, one that is violent, extremist, and ultimately um, against the well-being of other groups of people, then the story just becomes even more complicated and complex. And yet it's really strange, isn't it, the way that the extreme right has 
managed to appropriate, and I say managed to because I think they've been quite successful in this, that they've managed to sort of appropriate the rhetoric of these Enlightenment humanist values and kind of claim them for themselves in a way which obviously, you know, a lot of people find very persuasive, right? Yeah, definitely. And a lot of the propaganda that I um, look at are propaganda that's generated by women. And so you see women who call themselves trad wives um, or women who want to represent the ideal version of a white woman who's a traditional wife. They would argue that they are actually choosing to be wives and mothers as a matter of a feminist choice. So they're choosing what she thinks, what all women by nature are and what they should be and that she's exercising her freedom and her equality and she's arguing that feminists are to blame for messing up these naturalistic she thinks values and categories so when you have you know people who are incredibly stubborn and have a political agenda it's very hard to find common ground and get a conversation going Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. We're going to come back to all that. I think there's some very interesting points to look at there. But uh, Louise, you have been trawling through the Australian newspaper's Facebook comment section, and you've been looking at people's objections to affirmative action. What are some of the main ones that you're encountering? So I wish that I didn't have to say this was so, but unfortunately there was a lot of sexist and misogynistic comments uh, that came up not in response to actually existing affirmative action measures that different workplaces or areas of social life have in place, but just to the mere idea, the very notion of quotas in the first place. So uh, at one point, the news headlines said that the Labor Party was going to introduce gender quotas for the Australia Day honours, and people just had a field day with that. You can imagine that it's even worse when it comes to politics because then you do get what's like an interesting form of misogyny, intradivisional misogyny, where the women who appear to be holding up the conservative values of the party, it's quite in parallel with what Tracy has said. So long as they are performing those actions, they will be described as good women. And they'll be described as good women through praising discourse. So they'll say, you know, Julie Bishop, she was a woman of merit, or Gladys Berejiklian, she was a woman of merit, or Margaret Thatcher, she was a woman of merit. And then on the other hand, you have this punishing discourse where people will point out the individuals they think don't merit their jobs. So interestingly, Julie Bishop is on the other side of the coin for some people as well. Uh, We also find uh, Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young cops a lot of flack. And then beyond that, which I thought was very interesting, there was this egalitarian discourse going on where people were saying, you know, individual choices, let women choose what they want to do. If they don't want to be politicians, why are we trying to make them be politicians? Like, why are we calling for equality in the parliament when we're not doing the same thing for truck drivers and brickies and so forth? And there's kind of like an undertow of resentment and hostility that's going on in these comments. And it's directed at women because when people mention affirmative action, they automatically think special rights for women. They don't automatically think that it could be for another group like men. And then 
underneath that, because this is an egalitarian discourse where people are saying, you know, people merit their positions and those are the people who need to be rewarded or people choose their life paths and it's not for you to say that they can't go and pursue their caring, wifely roles in the home if that's what they want to do because everybody's already equal. But because the starting premise that men and women are equal is wrong and they're not aware that this is the case or they don't believe that this is the case, then all of a sudden affirmative action starts to look like reverse discrimination, starts to look like special treatment for women when they haven't actually done anything to deserve it. Well, it's interesting because as you've pointed out in your work, the the, uh, origin story, if you like, uh, of feminism involves this idea that once upon a time women were treated as a subordinate class to men and disadvantaged by stigmas attached to that class, to that group. And feminists work very hard to advance the cause of women being treated as individuals. But now it seems like that commitment to individualism has become something of a liability and it sort of pulls the rug out from under any attempt to advocate for women as a group. Is that a problem that you have identified? Yes, I think that it's a problem that's been uh, in tension with liberal feminists and other forms of feminism for quite some time now, at least since the second wave of feminist theorising. And the question really boils down to whether or not liberalism has the tools to save itself or whether we need to actually abandon liberalism and go for something else like a republicanism or uh, move outside of the liberal tradition, which focuses so much on sameness and start revaluing what difference is and then reapproach these core values that societies share, societies like ours, which are equality, liberty and autonomy. And if we refigure what it means to treat people who are different to us with respect and acknowledge their limitations and their advantages and try to structure our society differently around that, instead of presuming that everyone is an individual who's abstracted from their context and their bodily specificity, that that's the only way to go to actually bring about a society where people genuinely can make autonomous choices in their lives. They genuinely are free to direct their life path as they see it and they are treated with dignity. So we need to acknowledge that everybody isn't at the start line. Some people haven't made it there yet. And so we need to restructure our societies even more than they have already been restructured with the laws that are already in place and the work, po- uh, the workplace policies that we have in order to better enhance women's autonomy and liberty. So the argument can be made. Um, it's not necessarily the case that we have to abandon liberalism and the individualism that comes with it, but certainly there are feminists who think that liberalism is just unredeemable. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guests this week are Louise Richardson-Self and Tracy Lanera. Both of them are going to be speaking at a public panel on August the 9th that looks very interesting indeed. The topic is Resentment, Guilt and Shame Under Patriarchy. It's an online event and if you're interested in being part of it, we've got full details on the Philosopher's Zone website. (laughs) 
So far, we've been talking about issues for women and for feminism in the context of what you might call the liberal democratic centre. But Tracy, you've been looking at what's happening over on the right or the alt-right with regard to misogyny. So misogyny on the alt-right, how endemic or how central to alt-right ideology is misogyny? Thanks, David. It's pretty bad. (laughs) Um, Prominent white racists today have been documented to mistreat their wives, their girlfriends, their mothers. Um, But even in their recruitment, the alt-right seems pretty proud that they're misogynistic. They've been using it to recruit um, people into the movement. So the pitch, according to extremist researchers, goes something like this. Um, The feminists are guilty of like warping the brains of so many women, and these women owe you something. Your life would have been like this, but because of all of these things they're doing, you can't access them. And once this kind of rhetoric becomes normalized in the discussion, they then talk about other things, like how immigrants of color, Jews, um, Black lives, Lives Matter supporters, they're all stealing their money, their livelihood, and their dignity as white people. So it's interesting then that there are, or there seem to be, plenty of women over on the extreme right. I mean, Lauren Southern is is just one that will be familiar to Australian listeners, perhaps, but there, there are plenty of others. I mean, given this deeply rooted misogyny that you've been talking about, why are the women there? What, what's their role? Is it strategic? Is it self-interested? What's going on? So the overarching narrative, at at least let's begin with that, that ties all persons involved in the alt-right movement, regardless of gender orientation, is the view that the white identity is in danger um, from things like non-white immigration, multiculturalism, the global left, even political correctness, like those are threats to their existence. So they see themselves as defending the Western civilization and protecting traditional values, which they regard as achievements of the white race. And women here, of course, play a curious and ambivalent role. It's understandable that they're in it because they're racists, but they also seem to accept, and sometimes they even wholeheartedly embrace that misogyny is just part of the hate territory. Um, Men in extremist groups see women's sexual freedom as a threat to the preservation and social dominance of the white identity. But it would be misleading to assume that racist white women simply embrace claims that reduce them into mere mediums of propagation. Because in the racist hierarchy, white women are inferior to white men in virtue of their gender, but they are superior to everyone else. So there is a benefit, there is an advantage attached to being part of this movement. So while they would describe their political activism in terms of their relationship and responsibility to white men in the white race, they also see their whiteness as the source and of their dignity and social entitlement. So they do have a self-conception all their own, and it's irreducible to the more popular childbearing role that's emphasized in public discourse. I'm interested to know from both of you as feminist philosophers, how do you position yourselves with respect to these women? I mean, do you do you see them as just virulently anti-feminist and therefore sort of beyond the pale in some sense? Or, or is there a sense for you in which they are still women, they are still subject to misogyny and hate, and so there's some kind of sympathy there? Louise, what about you? I think that people still fall back on naturalising different traits of men and women. So, you know, they'll say things like, women just prefer not to be involved in politics. They prefer to stay home and take care of children. And I think that there's also security 
in playing up to patriarchal norms of womanhood if you are a woman who also bears the traits of all the other privileged classes in one society. So in the case of the extreme right, um, with Tracy saying that women have really hit their stride playing into these new images of white womanhood and that it's, you know, financially lucrative and so forth. I think that that is another way in which people are, are able to maintain the idea that women and men are fundamentally different and that equality of outcome, however that is understood, cannot be obtained between them. And even if it could, it would be artificial and unfair and unjust. So we've got to figure out where it's possible to engage in dialogue and critique and do some perspectival shifting in order to move people away from the perception that women are inferior to men or that women are just naturally different to men. And that just so happens to lead them down the life path where they don't exhibit much autonomy or choice. And men just happen to end up in the powerful society shaping roles, which we all know them to live in. Um, But it's certainly not a case of sympathy. Like one can clearly see the logic that moves behind women who are extremely conservative, but there is scope, I guess, for finer grain discussion between those women who are open to a genuine dialogue about the conditions of society and those who are firmly, steadfastly stuck in their beliefs and will not entertain any alternative interpretations of the facts of their world. Tracy, what about you? Women on the extreme right who are victims of misogyny, any sympathy or fellow feeling there? How do you feel about them? Simply put, I do find them repulsive. And the reason for that is after wading through so much racist propaganda and watching so many of their videos, like you could really see the mal, the the ill intent. You could really see that they're in it to profit from harm and they're endangering so many vulnerable communities and they participate in the outright deliberately, despite the fact that they're hurting so many people. So it's really difficult for me to sympathize with them. But at the same time, I also have to wear the feminist cap. And I I know that if feminist philosophy is to remain true to its aim, that we need to examine all forms of ideology that work against women, then it is worthy of critique. And I also like to think that there is an ameliorative dimension or a pragmatic purpose behind all this. Because if we look at the lived experiences of these women, we can actually identify markers of emancipatory or liberatory potential from these experiences of gendered oppression. So there are more and more women leaving the alt-right. And if you look at their narratives, the reason that they were pushed out of the alt-right were precisely because they encountered misogyny from within the group. They were constantly being put in their place because they were speaking out or because they were doing something which men perceived as too domineering. One member of the hate group Identity Europa pointed out quite funnily even, that they would be the ones responsible for earning money, raising money for the alt-right. And then the men would do the podcasts. But in the podcasts, what the men would say is that women shouldn't do any work. So those kinds of contradictions, I think there's potential here to see ways in which 
these groups could be dismantled. And one way is by looking at which groups of people are being oppressed in this particular group. And evidently, it's the women. We were talking earlier about the ways in which liberal humanist values don't necessarily represent good news for women. But, you know, I, I look at these groups, these these ethno-state nationalists and white supremacists, not just openly espousing their ideology, but actually making careers out of it. You know, and I, I find myself thinking, like, how did this thing get out of its box? I mean, after World War II and the Holocaust and... It seemed like liberal humanism in the West had had this wake-up call and, and began to vigorously reassert itself. And you had uh, the establishment of the UN and the rise of the civil rights movement and the rise of feminism and all the rest of it. And now I wonder if you think that what we badly need at this point in our history is another sort of shot in the arm, another renaissance of, of vigorous liberal humanism to combat the extreme right, in spite of all the problems with it that we were talking about earlier. I think that the values of liberal humanism are quite good. I think it is important to be invested in equality and to care about it as a social good. I think it's important to enable people to live as freely as possible and not have any kind of structural impediments in their way. But the issue, I think, up until now has been that a society got structured according to the, the needs and the projected life paths of men. And then women have pushed for rights and it's ended up in like repackaging some parts of society in order to get women to effectively be able to function in the public sphere as men do. But it's never really worked because, you know, women have still had to do a double day of labor in the house and then out in the workforce. There's always been this sense in which even though we push and we push and we push for equality, we never really kind of got the balance right. And yet simultaneously, there are other people who think that, you know, this is this has all gone too far. Women have already got all of their rights and it is outrageous that there would be so much reverse sexism and reverse discrimination against men. And that I think is the really interesting distinction because, you know, like the facts are the facts, right? Australia's had this particular history. It's got these laws, it's got so-and-so workplace policy and so forth. And yet it has different people of both genders on both sides saying things like women are oppressed or men are the new oppressed class in Australia. So it's not so much that the values need to just be revived. It's that we really need to critically examine what people are appealing to when they use terms like equality or freedom in order to describe the problems that are going on in society. I agree completely with that. I think we have to be more comfortable with the discomfort behind the process of interrogating the loaded and mistaken assumptions or definitions or meanings that we've attributed to these liberal humanist values. And the reason why this is so obvious is that, obvious to me at least, is that the very fact that extremist groups with a particularly horrible political agenda are able to very efficiently twist and weaponize and use these concepts for their own good and actually attract so many people into their fold um, and get them to commit violence. That's already a sign that there is something like 
deeply wrong with how the discourse is going on. So part of making sense of this situation is being able to just talk to people in such a way that you recognize that these liberal humanist values may not be the terms or the ideas that were originally promised as liberatory by humanist enlightenment. Tracy Lanera, Research Fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Society at the University of Notre Dame, and Louise Richardson-Self, Lecturer in Philosophy and Gender Studies at the University of Tasmania. And as I mentioned earlier, they will be speaking at a public panel on resentment, guilt and shame under patriarchy. That's happening on August the 9th. And if you'd like to virtually attend, we've got details on the Philosopher's Zone website. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm David Rutledge on Twitter at David P Zone. Bye for now.